Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today. To have Squared, we're going to be a couple of mediocre apologists responding to James Fedora and Nathan Ordman on fine-tuning. What's up, Squared? Oh, nothing much. How about you? Oh, just chilling. You know, we're about to just like try to sum- summarize a nine-hour response video in about like an hour and a half. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah. yeah, you pumped? Yeah, I'm excited. Oh, and yes. by the way, yeah. James and Nathan, if you ever make a response video, I did the math. Um, if we make a 90-minute response video to your roughly 556-minute video, that means your response video ought to be 15 minutes long. Just FYI. <laughs> we'll leave it out there. Um, but yeah, in case you don't know what we're going to be doing today, is we're going to be responding to a video called Bad Apologetics on the fine-tuning argument by Nathan and James. It's nine hours long, and Squared and I have both listened to the whole thing. And mostly Squared, but a little bit of me, try to do a lot of work in summarizing this entire argument everything that they try to lay out and respond to with regards to fine-tuning. And Squared has a nice long presentation that we're going to talk through and play some clips and whatnot. So, yeah, Squared, is there anything you want to say before we jump into it? Uh, just that I, I really enjoyed their video. I think that um, they, they bring some uh, some really good objections. Uh, and uh, they're pretty thorough, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I, I really appreciate their um, objections. They're, like, uh, fairly high-level stuff. So, yeah, that's all I have to say. Hmm. I mean, I thought the video was a little short. I was expecting more like 14 hours, yeah. but you know, nine and a half. Yeah, okay. like 12 um, at least to really just get through all the stuff. But yeah. But no, honestly, like so much, I have so much love for Nathan and uh, James just because they like, they're really trying to engage with like the best of what the other side has to say. And they're really like, they're just not lowballing. Um, and we're going to talk about their objections and hopefully to Nathan and Josh and anyone listening, it'll be edifying. But Squared, yeah. are you ready to get this thing started? Oh yeah, I'm totally ready. Let's go. Alrighty, so I have your slides pulled up here, and just let me know when you're ready to play clips and whatnot. So here we yeah, go. Yeah, so I, I, as you can see, I, I might not have like a PhD in physics or anything, but like I do have Microsoft Paint, so maybe <laughs> this beautiful slideshow presentation for y'all. And uh, in case you, you can't tell, this is Zach destroying naturalism with his laser eyes of logic. Anyways, <laughs> going on. So, okay, I'm going to first start by summarizing the basic fine-tuning argument, and I'm going to use that visually with the square. So the square, it's a one-by-one unit square, and the area of the square is going to be used to represent probability. So, like, take an indeterministic event like coin toss. Um, There's a 50-50 chance of it being heads or tails, and we could represent that as the area of this square. So 50% of the area of the square is heads, 50% of the area of this square is tails. So we could also um, break up the area of this square for more complicated events, like say I have a red coin and a green coin. We could have then four events, heads, heads, tails, heads, heads, tails, tails, tails. And all these events are equally likely, so they um, take up a fourth of the probability space. And also I need to mention what happens when we get new information, like say, one of the coins lands on heads, what ha- what do we do? Well, if you notice the bottom of the square here, um, the pink and the orange parts, they have the red coin landing tails. So we know that the pink and the orange are impossible. So what we do is we just erase them from the square. But now um, we have this kind of more, uh, we have a rectangle, not a square. We got to stretch the remaining two possibilities to fill up the entire square so we get 50-50. There's now a 50% chance of getting heads-heads and tails-heads. How'd that sound, Zach? Making sense so I far? I think it's pretty straightforward. We're looking at like probability and like the nature of the fine-tuning argument. So what Square is doing is, before we get into like responding to Nathan and whatnot, we're kind of trying to get the gist of the fine-tuning argument. Yeah, At least how exactly. we're talking about it today. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
what what's the fine-tuning argument there are different ways of like cashing out what probability is but we're talking about like epistemic probability that's how probable something is that as far as an agent can tell basically so the googleth digit of pi is it even um that, that's a proposition we could talk about the probability of it um, if it's a 0, 2, 4, 6, or 8, then it's even. If it's a 1, 3, 5, or 7, or 9, then it's odd. And as far as I can tell, it's a 50-50 shot. I have no reason to believe it's odd or even. No human has calculated pi that far, I think. So it's just a 50-50 shot. Even though, if the um, Googleth digit of pi is even, it's mathematically impossible for it to be odd. And if the Googleth digit of pi is odd, then it's mathematically impossible for it to be even. So the probabilities here are as far as an individual agent can tell, not actually what is metaphysically or logically possible. Uh, we could also talk about other propositions like, is this number here prime? Well, I happen to uh, know the mathematical factoid that the bigger a number is, the less likely it is to be prime. So I think it's really probably not prime, um, but as you could probably see fairly quickly, epistemic probability is also gonna vary a lot depending upon a given agent, what facts they know, like you might already happen to just know off the top of your head that that number is prime, but I don't. So, and I haven't checked it. So that, yeah, that's a kind of an idea of probability here. So now here's what the um, standard fine tuning argument is going to look like. We have theism and naturalism here. I've drawn them as roughly the same prior probability, like the same starting out probability. You might think one has quite a leg up on the other, but pretty soon that's not going to matter because we're going to look at a piece of data. So we're going to first, um, we're, we're going to look at a piece of data soon, but before that, sorry, don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to color in theism and naturalism with uh, the colors green and red. Um, green will represent the probability that we'll get a fine-tuned universe, and red is going to represent the probability we're going to get a non-fine-tuned universe. So coloring in theism, we get that most of it's probably going to be green, because in um, if theism is true, you have like a, a god who's all good and stuff, and wouldn't he create a fine-tuned universe? Like, I mean, there obviously there's going to be some right because God could decide to not create a universe, but you get a good chance of God creating a fine-tuned universe. Now, for naturalism, we're going to color in green and red the epistemic probabilities, and um, smart people with lab coats and PhDs and um, expensive supercomputers and all that have run all the calculations, and they found that actually naturalism is just this sea of red with one green dot. So like, if you, that is to say, if you vary the constants, the physical constants that appear in all our uh, fun physics equations, um, you very quickly get a non-life permitting universe, a universe that can't have life in it. Um, it's only in a, this very small range, this green dot of values that you can actually get any life in it. Now, Zach, do we happen to live in a universe that can support life? Well, you know the universe is 99.99% life prohibiting, so it's obviously a red universe, but no, 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 it's a green no. life. Okay, well, the fact that there are people in it, though, is what the fine-tuning argument cares about. Exactly, so, yeah. Yeah, so the universe is a fine-tune. That is to say, like, we got the coin flip earlier that gave us new information. Um, the fact that we live in a universe with life in it, that is some information that we care about. And um, so it's that means we, we've basically gotten a green green dot we know some green the sorry we know that the green is true basically so that means we have to get rid of all the red but now that we've gotten all the red we need to get a square again so we're going to um stretch all the probability space that's green 
and in equal proportions until we filled up the whole square. But what happens then is that theism is basically just going to dominate the entire probability space. And here, let me get their colors back to blue and yellow. Whereas naturalism now just occupies this tiny space of the probability space here. Theism dominates. We're virtually certain now that theism is true. So that's the fine-tuning argument in a nutshell, visualized with this square. I like squares. But James is going to come along and say, no, he doesn't like this version of the uh, fine-tuning argument. He doesn't think it works. He's going to blow it up with his laser eyes of logic. There we go. Um, so now I'm going to get into James Fedora's objections. I'm going to, I'm basically attributing this all to Fedora, but like, um, Jay, Nate, sorry, Nathan Ormond, he gives a lot of objections, but they're mostly articulated by Fedora. So that's why I have his name on all this stuff. Anyways. Mm -hmm. um, so Fedora's actually going to like, he's already going to object at this first part. He's going to say that uh, like you could have, you, you might be an individual who thinks that theism is super duper unlikely. So like maybe you just get a sliver here, but um, setting that aside and for the sake of my drawing as well, we're just going to assume that they start with roughly on a roughly equal playing field. So what a theist will not want to say that God is indifferent to creating a fine-tuned universe. That's going to make theists sad because, well, then um, the, prob the probability that God would create a fine-tuned universe is going to be roughly the same probability that we get a fine-tuned universe on naturalism, just from the product of randomness or indifference. So what the theist is going to want to say is that there's um, God's going to have a higher probability of getting or of creating a fine-tuned universe. He's going to be predisposed towards it. But they're not going to want to say that 100% of the theism probability space is green as well. That's also going to make the theist sad because if 100% of the probability space is green, then that would make the universe necessary. That is, there's no possible way to have um, the God without the universe. And that violates Christian doctrine. So the theist is going to want to have add some super specific theology to their theism so that we avoid indifference to make it, which would make it equally likely as naturalism, or sorry, which would make a green dot equally likely as naturalism. But we don't want to be 100% green as either. We're going to want to add some theology to get like this kind of Goldilocks in the center um, probability distribution of green and red. But when you add this theology to your theism, that makes it more complex. And if you add complexity to a, a particular idea or a particular um, hypothesis, that actually shrinks its probability. So theism now, because we've added this theology, um, occupies less of the probability space. It's just in the corner now. But um, if you thought that was bad, Fedora's just getting started. Um, there's also the fact that like God um, can create us as immaterial beings, beings that don't have physical bodies and therefore wouldn't occupy fine-tuned universes. This wouldn't, even though this would be life, this wouldn't be a green dot. It would be some other color. So I'm just going to use orange. Um, there's this good chunk of the probability space where God creates life, but it's not physical life in a fine-tuned universe. So now green is just this tiny little sliver of the theism space, even after we have all this nice theology. But you might be thinking, okay, well, whatever. We're still going to win when we uh, uncover that naturalism is just this one tiny green dot in a sea of red, right? Well, not quite. James is I keep calling, switching between calling him James and calling him Fedora. I better pick one. James is going to yeah. say, hey, um, we have checked that around this one green dot, uh, which is our 
um, our fine-tuned universe um, to get carbon-based life, um, mixing up with the constants, like modifying them ever so slightly, that results in a universe that cannot have carbon-based life. However, it's epistemically possible to have universes that are governed by a completely different set of equations or uh, life that isn't carbon-based even in our own universe. And we just haven't looked into any of this stuff. Most of the probability, the, the epistemic probability space here is completely unsearched. So like we have this fog covering it of just not being looked at yet. We don't know what's under there because we haven't uh, put the time and effort into looking for anything besides universes that are relatively similar to ours and whether life relatively similar to ours could sur survive in that universe. Um, yeah, sorry. I know that. Um, okay, right. Sorry. There is going to be uh, some clips of them we're going to be playing soon. Um, now, something that Nathan does next is really interesting. He points out other epistemically possible kinds of life that can exist, that could exist, like crystal-based life. We have we haven't had those PhD smart people with supercomputers check what uh, possible universes could have crystal life in it. And um, here's an episode of Star Trek where um, that the there was a crystalline being, a totally different kind of life that they met. And um, James points out lots of other different epistemically possible forms of life. That So he, what he's essentially doing is he's going to this fog and picking out tiny pinpricks of it, of the fog, like removing it and revealing green dots beneath it. Uh, do you want to play a clip where he goes through like different forms of life and all that fun stuff yeah i'll do that i'll pull it up it's think about 15 seconds so if there's anything else you want to add before i do no nope. i pull it up just let me know um i wish i love how long this video is because it's so thorough but then it's so hard to like find specific timestamps um mm -hmm. because it's so long so but here we go here's a clip that we're gonna play um put it up on the stream here okay here we go just oh one second here so sad. Um, we're taking a moment here. Pause. pause, pause. Yeah, there's this uh, but, thing that we... uh, he raised a few things that I did want to respond to. So can you um, hear it? Yep. You can hear it. Okay. Just uh, a bit of revision there. So remember, he he's talked about you know, he showed us the three-dimensional plot thing with the different face bases. The technical term here, um, or parameter space, I guess technically, but. Um, and show that only a tiny sliver of it permits the existence of, oh, I forgot what it was now. Was it protons? Um, it proton, yeah, where, where the protons stick to each other or something like that. Yeah, outside that, you get uh, other particles that don't stick to each other. Um, I think, yeah, so these would be baryons because they're made of quarks. So the question would be, why do we need baryons that stick to each other? How does he know that? embodied life requires that that seems to be assuming that it's made out of similar stuff to what it's currently made of i don't think that we know that especially when we've got 20 parameters so he showed a three-dimensional plot it's really like 20 plus dimensional so really he's looking at this tiny pinprick in this massive space we have no idea what the space looks like so i would like to know how he knows that we need these type of particles for embodied life to exist um, okay, so that's a little clip. This is at the 6.53 mark of the video in case you can't read it. Um, there are videos linked down below, and he's responding to Luke Barnes' opening statement in a video with Alex Malpass on fine-tuning. Just trying to get a little bit of the context of what James just said right there. Um, but yeah. Squared, are you there? Can you oh, hear me? Sorry, I muted for that part, and I forgot. Okay, can you get the slideshow back? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. 
So what we have then is, um, if you look at this, now it's not so clear that um, there is just some blob of green hiding underneath the uh, fog of, on the naturalism side. So now you're like thinking, okay, man, there's not really a clear winner here between the theism and naturalism. And it gets even worse because at the end of the day, James always has the ability to add something like uh, some metaphysical thesis on top of his uh, naturalism, like the idea that there's a multiverse or some universe generator or a mysterious disposition. And what that will do is we'll add complexity, like we discussed, to naturalism, excuse me, and therefore shrink it, but it will add a nice blob of green to the naturalism side. So uh, that's always an option available to the naturalist. So at the, it seems like the theist doesn't have much of a good argument here. Now, obviously, because we're making this, I'm going to object to a lot of the points Nathan raised. So let's let's get into that. So first, I'm okay with like 100% um, of the theism space being green. The uh, Christian doctrine doesn't actually say that there's a non-zero probability that God uh, would refrain from creating the universe. It just says he could refrain, refrain from creating the universe as far as I know. So that means that um, all you need is an infinitesimal point or that a point with an area of zero that's red uh, to have a possibility. You don't need any area which is red. You could have 100% of the area of the probability space be green, even if individual points are a different color. So what this basically means is on the, uh, J James is presenting like this kind of Goldilocks thing. You don't want to be too hot or too cold. And I'm basically saying, hey, it doesn't matter how hot it is. I'll pretty much always be fine. I just don't want it to be cold. So what I'm going to try and do is give a the um, introduce some sort of theology which explains why God would want to create um, physical ki uh, kinds of entities like you and I. And um, I'm not going to worry too much about trying to put the brakes on that once the probability gets up to 100%. I'll just let the probability fall wherever, it'll, wherever it lies. So now when I'm uh, introducing my theology, what um, this theology, I'm, what I'm basically trying to do is say that um, the green is going to be more likely than, say, orange or even red. Um, going to try and give you an argument for you to see that, like why we wouldn't have just disembodied minds. So it's why we'd expect like God to create like some sort of like fine-tuned universe that like yeah, supports like rather than just organs. like yeah rather than just like minds that lack any sort of physical body or any need for fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm um, getting from theism to adding a, some theology to it, I'm going to try and minimize the shrinkage that happens, the shrinkage of the probability space. But how do I do that? Well, there's there's more, but there uh, two of the criteria I'm going to focus on is complexity and expectedness. I don't want to add a super complex theology, and um, I also want the theology to be rather expected already under theism. So you could think of a bad kind of theology to try and argue for fine-tuning is like a theology where God likes the existence of carbon atoms. Um, that has a lot of complexity, and there's no reason to expect that on theism, so that's not the kind of theology I'm going to be invoking. Instead, I'm going to invoke uh, this theology. God likes relationships, as represented, obviously, by this red heart here. God likes relationships, and that's all I'm going to try. And I'm going to try and use this theology alone, God likes relationships, to get to we need something like a physical universe. How am I going to do that? Okay, well, imagine you have two minds, and um, they're not physical yet. It just God creates these minds, doesn't have a body. Or, they don't have bodies or anything. They're just disembodied that's redundant anyways we have these two minds 
And I've um, illustrated mind one on the left and mind two on the right here. But again, they're disembodied, so they have no physical relation to each other. Now, at the very minimum, what is going to be required for them to be able to have a relationship? Well, oh yes, as, as illustrated by uh, uh, this heart here. Well, what you need to have is if one mind um, intends for the other to experience something, the other mind will then experience it. But how do you get that? I mean, you could just, well, you, you have, God has some options because, you know, he's God. Um, but what do you have? Like, sorry, you do have some options. One, it could be that God just instantaneously, or God grants mind one the ability to just imbue mind two telepathically with whatever experience mind one wants mind two to experience. So mind one just in it, just grants mind two experiences. Um, now, what this, this will get messy for uh, when you have a lot of minds all in different relationships. Like they just all tell, are they all telepathically communicating back and forth with, with each other? This creates a, a quite a muddled web of uh, telepathic communications between all these different minds. What would be a, a lot nicer, a lot easier to keep track of for these poor minds is if there's like one common thing all in between them all that they could all interact with. They could all set the state of it in a specific way, um, which I've represented. They're all like contributing to different colors or whatever. And they could all also check the state of it. That way they could all interact with it with each other and with, uh, by interacting with this inter intermediate medium. And obviously, that if they're going to be interacting with this intermediate thing to be able to interact with each other, they have to be quite familiar with how this intermediate thing works. They have to be able to control it. There has to be like regularities to how it works um, so that they could use it consistently. This uh, sounds quite universy, this, th like this intermediate thing that they're all going to be uh, interacting with. So for me, at least, the fact that uh, there's a physical universe where I could like use it to say interact with Zach's disembodied mind with by I intend to cause some sound waves, the sound waves in this intermediate medium, the universe. He has ears that can pick it up, and now his mind has an experience. So I can intend for Zach to experience, uh, say, the sound of my voice, and I could actually actualize that. So um, something like a physical universe, I would say, is quite expected under theism. And um, the idea that you have physical bodies, I think that that's also um, qu quite a good idea because that allows you, if the the medium, its states are too complex for you to grasp entirely in your mind at once, then um, having a body allows you to like go around and check different parts of the state of this physical medium and also interact with localized parts and interact with individuals at any given time. So. From an, uh, I think that it, even if it's not entailed, it's heavily implied by um, God's uh, love of relationships that, that you would have something like a physical universe. And um, why? Sorry, I, I'm not going to go too much into why God would want relationships because, it, like, um, there's a whole question about moral theories and whatnot. But I think that a plausible moral theory would have like. Uh, relationships between agents, like loving relationships being a good thing. Anyways, is there a clip that we had with that? Uh, yeah, are you talking about the Craig moral argument one, or um, uh, why no, would I, I create fine tune universes? Um, no, I think um, I go over like the moral argument stuff later. Okay. So I'm just going to move on. 
No. Okay. Uh, can, here, can I just summarize just to help people like that are tracking yeah, yeah, along? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think what you're trying to get at is responding to, to James has this objection that you hear a couple times throughout the video where it's like, why would God need to create a fine-tuned universe um, that would allow for like carbon life such as us? Like he could just create like disembodied minds or things like that. Um, like surely God's a disembodied mind, so he could just create other ones. Um, so then we're just kind of, you're just kind of counter that objection by showing like there's good reason to think that God would want to create some sort of like physical universe with like embodied minds to, so they can like interact with each other. Just trying mm -hmm. to summarize that like, section. Yeah, I'm trying to like go from like really abstract stuff. Like we just want relationships, okay? Like from that mm -hmm. really abstract point, what would be like, uh, useful or good for relationships for that uh, for, from that like really abstract out um, theoretical area we work to that this kind of theoretic there's going to be some in medium that you could have a bunch of agents interacting with that is uh, has regularities built into it and that is you know I probably as that's like really close to a universe so the fact that we do live in a fine-tuned universe that's something I would expect a lot on theism Okay. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a great summary. Okay, moving on. Oh, yeah, I don't want to skip too far. So, uh, I think that probably the strongest objection is that we just uh, have this layer of fog here. Um, but here's what I have to say to that. So, one thing that they point out is uh, Conway's Game of Life. Conway's Game of Life is a two-dimensional kind of way of... Um, Sorry, it's a two-dimensional, it's called a zero-player game. Basically, you have a bunch of squares, and the squares either are colored in or not colored in, depending upon certain rules programmed into each cell. They look at their neighbors. If there's too many uh, neighbors, then they die. If there's uh, too few, then they starve. But if there's just right, then um, they reproduce, basically. that's. Y'all need to research it. It's just really interesting. I'm not going to go too much further into it. But the basic idea is that Conway's you can Game find of this, Life... Just find this clip in on, at, like, um, what is it? It's, like, 658. You can hear them talking about it if you want to go into this further. Yeah. Um, and sorry what's really interesting about Conway's Game of Life is that you can make really complex things in it, and you might be able to actually make, like, a living organism in Conway's Game of Life. Or some. you could make a Turing machine um, and then, like, pro simulate a brain in it, for example. So... It seems like that's actually something that would count as a fine-tuned universe if you had Conway's Game of Life. So what I'm I'm bringing up this as an example because, um, oh, sorry, I forgot. I wanted to talk about this. This is just some. I found a Conway's Game of Life game online, and you you could feed it with random noise. And if you just feed it with random noise, you get um, gliders like uh, self-perpetuating um, structures just by random chance. Anyways. Um, what Conway's Game of Life is very interesting, um, it, but it, the um, the parameters about when a cell will die or when a cell like when a cell will starve or when it will overcrowd that's actually based off of these numbers here, these rules. To, and uh, standard Conway's Game of Life is the numbers two, three, three, three. And what's interesting is that the if you vary any of these constants, like you change death by loneliness to get them all threes, then the same kind of noise will just instantly kill everything. Um, the, the specific generator I found had a very nice random rules button, which is cool because we're talking about um, uh, randomness to some degree. And uh, what I did is I just fed this noise into different random rules. And what happened was either the, um, the every cell just got filled up really quickly, or um, what happened was they all died out. Um, 
really quickly. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is that um, varying the parameters in Conway's game of life actually will lead to things that are inhospitable to life. Like assuming Conway's game of life that is hospitable to life, that is fine-tuned in some sense, well, there are a bunch of different uh, versions of Conway's game of life with different rules that are not hospitable to life. And I spend way too much time like just playing around with random universes, oh, universes, quote unquote, in Conway's game of life and seeing if you can make anything interesting happen. And it was for all of them like that I came across that was not the original Conway's game of life. You couldn't get um, anything that would actually allow you to create a computer or like a Turing machine in Conway's Game of Life. That's not rigorous or anything, but what that leads me to believe is that Conway's Game of Life, this green dot that's fine-tuned, it has it's surrounded by some red, by all these epistemically possible like um, universes with rules that govern it that would not allow you to have any sort of life in it. That, that That's kind of what I'm getting at. This Conway's Game of Life, yeah, if that is met, um, if that is actually a possibility under naturalism, well then so are going to be the these other variations of Conway's game of life where you can't have anything interesting going on in them. And if we keep go if we actually keep searching like these green dots that naturalists point us to and find that they have red um like lots of ways to be dead surrounding them epistemically um very uh, let me put it this way if they have uh give us green dots and in these green dots there are universes with constants and uh, in these other weird universes you have life but we find that each time a naturalist can give us something like that we could vary the constants and they're just surrounded by inhospitable universes and what that's going to make me think is that this is actually how naturalism looks naturalism looks like a completely red thing like a sea of red with just green dots in it because that's what we've Every time that we get a, a green dot, we just find swaths of red surrounding it. It seems like, to put it simply, every time you introduce into the naturalist um, probability space a way to be alive, you introduce way more ways to be dead. So for me, at least, I find um, I, I'm not convinced by this. There are other uh, or that this objection that there's way more to the probability space that we just haven't checked out. But that, that's just my particular feelings about it, essentially. Like, this is my intuition about it. Why, why should you trust that? You want something rigorous, right? But how... Uh, so, thinking, I was thinking about how to be rigorous about it. And being rigorous is about this question is actually really hard. Because what we essentially need to do to be rigorous about the um, checking the entire uh, probability space of the naturalism side is look at the set of all possible physical universes which is like this infinitely large set where every um, element of that set is a, um, like, a, sorry, we could represent every possible physical universe as a set of ordered pairs of moments and physical states of that universe to get this whole, I'm going to just call it large P for the set of all possible physical universes. And these little P's represent um, possible universes. And each possible universe is a set of ordered pairs of moments and states, physical states to get the set of all possible physical universes. Don't want to repeat myself anymore. Moving on. What I'd essentially have to do to be rigorous is then get a function and define it well so that we could see, um, is it, it will tell us uh, what uh, elements of big P are life permitting and then compare that to 
the cardinality of the set of non-life permitting physical possible physical universes. That's really tough. But one thing I did realize is that uh, there's going to be a lot of chaotic possible physical universes in uh, Big P. Like this uh, possible physical universe, I just picked this one at random. In the first moment, we have a physical state that just consists of four particles. Then in the next um, moment, we have a physical state consisting of a line. Then in the next moment, we have a, a physical state representing a recursive centaur, which is half horse and half recursive centaur. I just found that funny. And then in the last uh, moment, we have a physical state, which is just empty. Like that is that given the way we've tried to rigorously define the set of all possible uh, physical universes, that's one universe right here. And it's just chaotic. It does not follow any sort of uh, physical laws. So you can't actually have any fine tuned life in that. And in the big P, the set of all possible physical universes is going to be dominated by chaotic universes. Because just think about um, this kind of set here. We have one moment, a line, and it's moving across different sets, and, or sorry, different physical states. And then we get to this branching here where it could go in either direction or any of these directions. We we're going to have one little P in, in the big P uh, representing each of these possible directions for it to go. Like, sorry, this is going to be one of the little P's. This is going to be a little P. This is going to be a little P. This is going to be a little P. And so what we're going to have is that big P here, its contents are dominated by chaotic universes that don't um, uh, follow any sort of physical laws. Whereas we have at the far end here, um, the actual set of universes that are super, um, or that are ordered and do follow uh, physical laws. So just to summarize that in case I wasn't making any sense, um, we could, I'm trying to be rigorous here to talk about the entire naturalism probability space. So we're talking about every possible way you could have a physical universe. But every possible way you could have a physical universe is going to involve a lot of chaotic universes where just stuff randomly happening. As long as the stuff that randomly happens is physical, it's still a physical universe. So naturalism is going to get dominated by these chaotic universes that don't have any laws governing them. So how does a naturalist get around this? Well, the same reason anyone's going to get around this is that you're going to in introduce some metaphysical stuff into your worldview that gets around these chaotic universes, that says these chaotic universes can't happen. But I really want, uh, I would really like to hear what the naturalist would introduce for this, th these metaphysical, um, I, I would, I guess, um, metaphysical theses that are going to stop all these chaotic universes from being added to their, um, the probability space because once they do it like say they think that um uh, the, all substances are fundamentally particles and particles have xyz causal powers at all times and that's why all these chaotic universes can't happen if you give me some thesis like that well that's going to annihilate um a lot of this gray area here because conway's game of life um for example isn't made of particles or you say something about the initial state of the universe and why and um, you describe to me what causal powers it has and say it's metaphysically necessary, that will get rid of the chaos, but it will also get rid of a large chunk of the gray. So that's kind of, that's, um, I think, a an interesting kind of Goldilocks uh, problem that the naturalist has as well, because if they're metaphys the metaphysical theses that they adopt are so um, strict that they restrict us to the only the stuff 
physicists have sorry, have studied, then, well, the uh, theist is going to win out over the naturalist. But if the metaphysical theses aren't strict enough, then they're going to include bits of the, or they're going to include chaotic universes in the um, epistemic probability space, which is going to uh, win out over the fog. Mm -hmm. So just to sum yeah, so just to summarize squared, I just like where you're coming from. So if I'm getting this right, so like one of James's big uh, objections to the fine tuning argument, which we played near like the beginning here, is the idea that we just have no idea if like other kinds of life could come about. Say like maybe like silicon life, or like maybe like something in like the quantum level or something like that. Uh, just like these other kinds that we just have no idea because we haven't investigated. And what you're saying is, well, we can grant that's possible because it seems like potentially like yeah, things could go right. Maybe we get life that's interesting in that kind of like form. But there's also, if we grant that, there's also a lot of ways surrounding that kind of universe or environment that it's going to go wrong, and there's just going to be no life, um, and it's not going to be interesting. It's like the more kind, kinds of life actually isn't going to be that helpful with like trying to counter the fine-tuning argument, because every time you introduce something that could go right, there's a lot more ways that it could go wrong. Is that mm. kind of like the gist of what you're getting at? That was like, yeah, one point before. Th this point I'm currently trying to make is basically like, well, also, what are you going to allow uh, as a possibility, are you going to allow universes that don't act, aren't actually governed by physical laws? Obviously, mm -hmm. you're not going to allow that. So um, you're going to have to give me some metaphysical thesis to say to outlaw um, universes that don't follow any sort of physical laws yet are nonetheless physical. And um, once you do that, though, those metaphysical theses could very well uh, rip up the, or sorry, outlaw a bunch of the the foggy stuff as well. So then the theist is in better standing. There's less gray for them mm -hmm. to have to worry about. Okay. So you're talking about like the disposition idea then more is what we're uh, looking at now. Uh, no, that, that's later. Um, okay. I'm sorry. sorry. It's fine. It's fine. I'll just move on. If that part made no sense, I apologize. Definitely. No, I'm totally tracking with you. I think I just have the labels wrong with like the oh, exact okay, section okay. we're at. Um, but yeah, I'm totally tracking with you. So Okay. Awesome. Uh, yeah. If I... I know we, there were clips we wanted to play, and if I'm just skipping over them, I apologize. But I think um, I'm not doing that. I think I'm not. I think we're doing good. I mean, obviously, I know that like we aren't playing a lot of clips from like James and Nathan, uh, and I think that's because like Square does a really good job of like kind of like overviewing the arguments and whatnot. And we might play a little bit more. We're not sure yet. Um, oh, so, but yeah, yeah, we're at, we're onto the mysterious dis uh, mis disposition part. If you want to play that, okay, I will play that clip. I'll pull it up in a second. Mm. Um, it'll take a few minutes. I had to close out my tab again. Oh. But it's kind of uh, here. Disclaimer, we are responding to nine hours of content. So there is a good chance that I've um, I've missed points that they've made or I they've like responded to individual points I've made up or sorry, brought up that um, and they, they've like responded somewhere in the nine hours and I've just missed it. So feel free mm -hmm. to watch the their their whole stream to fact check me because there's a good. Yeah, I, I think I've been thorough. I think I've, I'm responding to their points, but there is that possibility that I've missed something. You mean you're telling me you can't remember the entire nine hour and 15 minute stream? I, yeah, really sorry, I only memorized three hours of it. The other six hours just kind of fuzzy on, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, three hours, it's good attention span. Um, all right, you ready to get to this mysterious yes. position part? All right. Well, I take what he's saying, what else is saying here to be a way of drawing out the idea that how do we, what reason do we have for attributing agency? I'm listening. Sorry, what is There's an echo on your part. Okay, I think it's because for some reason it's going through my computer to like play it through my mic. So there might just have to be an echo. I have no oh, idea okay. why it's doing that. But okay. yeah. Um, yeah, sorry about that, guys. There's gonna be, I think there's just going to be a little bit of an echo here on my end. And you can blame my stupid Mac. But it's this very short clip. We have about 30 seconds left. Yeah. 
here. Because of God. Well, no, any agency, because right? Because he's going to say there's a disposition which is non-agentic. It's not like a mind that's decided to make it this way. There's just some mysterious disposition that the universe just ends up this way. Um, but I think the reason he's... Well, this is how I interpret what he's doing. He's appealing to the... Um, example of you know the, the card cheater because we know there's agency there we, you know we, we can tell we're interacting with a person so there's no sort of mystery about you wouldn't say there's a mysterious force of the universe that led to the cars being dealt that way because well there's the agent and we sort of we know that they would do that and how they would do that right but it's not that's not the case for the universe we, we don't know this that's not established and so the question would be why invoke agency at all instead let's invoke this other possibility which is just sort of some undefined but non-agentic mysterious disposition yeah Okay, so did you did you hear that squared clearly, like for mm -hmm. people listening? Yep. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I also have oh, well, slides, so I, I better remember what I'm talking about. Now, at this point, <laughs> actually, I I think that I must be missing something because it seems to be like a. Um, it seems to me that the uh, answer to it is like you know so obvious that I I know I must be missing something kind of idea, but maybe I'm not. Maybe I I just have a different perspective on it. So, and that's why I'm seeing this possibility. But basically, they're adding to their naturalism, naturalism and a disposition towards this green dot here. Like, so, um, somehow the, their, um, the universe is predisposed towards being fine-tuned. And, um, oh, by the way, I'm just drawing it as a sea of red now just for simplicity um, mm -hmm. instead of having the fog there. Anyways. And uh, the, the, the idea here is that they're saying they're not going to tell you much about the disposition um they're gonna leave it kind of mysterious because god is mysterious and i'm gonna be like okay fair game but here's i i have this hypothesis it's um this naturalism plus another disposition it's predisposed to this red dot down here there's it's just pointing to one specific red dot here and it's the, i'm not gonna tell you much more than that but the universe is predisposed towards that dot oh and i have this this other m mysterious disposition naturalism plus the disposition towards this red dot one specific red dot up there and i'm not going to tell you much more than that and i'm just going to keep giving you naturalism plus other mysterious dispositions until we get like a disposition per dot in the naturalism probability space and we end up with naturalism once again maybe stuff has moved around but like it's everything's going to have the same probability but the, the introduction of dispositions doesn't do anything now dispositions they do affect like real probabilities i guess um and like you might like um say i flip an indeterministic coin there's like the real probability of like say 50 50 but we're not talking about that we're talking about epistemic probabilities uh, so dispositions don't really help you with epistemic prob uh, uh, probabilities because any disposition is epistemically possible so until you give me a reason to prefer one rather than the other they're all going to be equally likely epistemically and so we just end up with naturalism again okay um yeah so, okay same goes for necessity as well like you could uh, say naturalism plus these and um fine fine-tuned constants are metaphysically necessary well i'm going to give you um another thesis um naturalism plus the fine-tuned uh, sorry, these constants here, which are not fine-tuned, but these specific values of constants that this red dot has, they're metaphysically necessary. And um, in this, this this thesis here is that naturalism is true, and um, some, this dot here is metaphysically necessary, and so on and so forth until we get naturalism once again. It seems that um, adding necessities or dispositions uh, doesn't affect um, epistemic probability space at all. Mm-hmm. 
Because remember, different metaphysically necessary things are all epistemically uh, possible. So it, it might be, it's epistemically possible that it's metaphysically necessary that there is a three-sided shape. And um, it's epistemically possible that it's n metaphysically necessary that there is a uh, four-sided shape or so. Until you give me a reason to prefer one to the other, then I'm going to say that um, they're equally, they're epistemically equiprobable or something like that. So until mm -hmm. you give me a reason to prefer this um, mysterious disposition towards this one part of the probability space as opposed to another part of the probability space, I'm just going to um, continue to believe that they're all epistemically equally likely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just before you get into your summary, just like, so trying to re just think about like what James was saying. So you can go like to the 747 mark where they're talking about like the Alex Malpass, Luke Parnes debate. And I think what Alex and James are trying to get at, and which I think you've adequately responded to here is the idea of like, so say like with theism, we have to add some sort of like theology or some sort of story to explain like why God would want like a fine tuned universe, um, like for our particular life. And then like Alex and James are trying to argue here that like, well, you could have that same, a similar kind of thing on naturalism and you could have like, without like the commitments that you have to have as a theism. So we, should, we could just have like some sort of like inclination towards fine tuning under naturalism as well. And there's just no problem here. And it does better than theism when we're looking at like the whole, the big picture and whatnot. So I think that's what they were trying to get at. Um, yeah. Okay, and um, yeah, so this is kind of my summary here, where I think the probability space looks like, I think um, maybe naturalism might have a slight advantage on um, prior to the fine tuning, like in terms of um, simplicity and whatnot, they might not in need to invoke as many theses. I think naturalism has a good chunk of green, um, although um, the kind of abstract reasoning I gave it might still leave a lot of space open for orange. And there is a good question to, and there is a, a, quite a bit of gray down here as well, because at the bottom left here, because um, we can't know with certainty what kinds of things God would prefer, but I think we can have a pretty good idea. On the naturalism side, um, I think it is probably red. It is There's like a sea of red with lots of green dots in it. It's foggy, I admit that. So if the, um, I'm not, excluding the possibility that the naturalist will find a blob of green. But as far as it stands for me, I really don't think that there's any blobs of green hiding in there. So mm -hmm. that, that's where I would put the fine tuning argument at the end of the day. That's my analysis. Yeah. So just to summarize here, I think this could be helpful. Like, so when we're looking at like how theism does with explaining fine tuning, Obviously, I see like if a theism like a little bit lower like initial probability because it's a little bit smaller rectangle. But like with like theism, we'd have pretty good reason to think that like if God were to create a universe, he'd create a universe with some sort of like embodied moral agents. So we talked a lot about that in the beginning of the video. They're not saying like God necessarily has to. And then like given naturalism, it seems unlikely that there'd be a universe that would allow for embodied moral agents because even um, like sure there's some vagueness and sure we don't know everything and sure there could be like other forms of life. But for every way that like things could go right, there's a lot more ways things could go wrong. And mm -hmm. so it just seems like like fine tuning would be some sort of evidence in favor of theism. Yeah. And okay. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I got some bonus objections we could go into now. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so uh, James is going to say that the idea, like appealing to mor the moral worth of humans to give a reason why God would allow or why God would make humans is bad for the moral argument. And my understanding or, I am going to object to that. My understanding of his argument is that like God could decide 
to make humans good or God could decide to make ghosts good or God could decide to make nothing at all good. And um, if, if you go with a moral argument, you're, you're committed to belief. Uh, but, and there's obviously like way more options that God has. God has infinite options. And um, once God makes that decision, it will lead to him making humans or making ghosts or making nothing or making whatever. And then that's going to fill up the probability space and you'll have like, I've only showed three options here, but really you'll have infinite options and green will just be like this tiny slice at the top and um, every other possible thing that God could decide to make uh, moral is moral in some slice of the probability space. Now, I'm going to uh, object to this by saying I don't think anyone who really pushes a moral argument is going to say that God decides what he makes good. Like, it just flows from his nature. So it flows from his nature that humans are good. So that's going to necessarily inform his intention to make humans. So theism is going to necessarily, um, or not necessarily, or sorry, yes, necessarily, um, it's going to be quite probable that God makes humans. I just filled it in. It's all green for uh, explaining that. I guess... Uh, we, were, we probably should have um, played the clip before that. Um, I mean, we can play it, or I can reference to people like the timestamp we had marked out if we we're going to play the clip. I don't know what you think is better at this um, point. Square. Yeah, I, I, I want to get through all of this because we're almost done. So let's just let's just push through. Okay, so it's just just to let people know. So if you go to seven twenty thirty five in the video, there's the clip for about a minute and a half that we were thinking about playing, if need be, with regards to like what. James says this many times throughout the nine hours, but this is like one clip in particular where he talks about like Craig's moral argument being potentially in conflict with like a fine tuning mm -hmm. argument. Yeah. Okay. And oh, uh, James objects that, okay, it's actually part of Christian theology that there are non physical beings. And I would say that they, they, for our purposes, they actually do count as physical. Like if you think of uh, like ghosts or um, uh, the best biblical cherubim picture I could find online, they are in some sense physical because if you think about it, the eyes are of uh, this ghost here have to interact with photons and the teeth of it to kill Mario. This is Mario ghost. To kill Mario, it has to apply pressure with its teeth. The wings of the cherubim, they are um, spatially, the feathers on it are spatially related to one another. Its eyes are interact with photons and all that fun stuff. So like they, ac they actually do stuff to physical matter. And if we could explain the way that these things apply to um, physical matter that with mathematical equations well then we could just call those the physical laws that govern these things so i think that actually in christian theology when we say that angels are non-physical we have to be careful because like every biblical portrayal of an angel does have it like uh doing things that could be mathematically described then we could just call those mathematical mathematical descriptions physical laws i think what we have to interpret the statement angels are non-physical as as they don't follow our physics but um, that's for our purposes. It doesn't matter. We're talking about like all kinds of weird physics, so that doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyways. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, another objection is that divine simplicity is weird. And um, I, which one was it? Who was it? Somebody in the video tried to argue that God is an intrinsically simple hypothesis because um, God, according to like classical theism, God is simple and has no parts. Um, I, and so like, a simple hypothesis has a high prior probability. So um, the theist is actually starting off pretty good because uh, with their God hypothesis. And uh, James here are, 
objects that divine simplicity it's very weird like god's power is identical to his knowledge like what that's weird but I'm going to object that he is completely right because, like, a classical. <laughs> I actually theism, agree too. Yeah, we can't. We got to stop doing this. Like arguing, like, it just seems so weird. Like classical theism, it's just so out there and bizarre. I mean, sorry, Caleb, uh, dry apologist, mm -hmm. but yeah, it it. I think we are shooting ourselves in the foot by arguing for divine simplicity. Um, I think you're right too. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, last one here, theism, um, James, this is a big, uh, like, is kind of nail in the coffin type objection is that theism lacks explanatory power because you have a God that can do anything. Um, it doesn't actually explain anything because God, you could just say God did it like for absolutely any event. And what I'm going to say is like, yeah, God could do anything, but um, that's not how I try to use God to explain things. I, I would appeal to things like, god's character and whatnot like um and to explain things and that actually does give me a principled way of explaining of uh, trying to explain to or sorry that gives me a principled way of appealing to god's explanatory power and that mm -hmm. and if i'm consistent with that then i'm going to say things like um embodied moral agents they are better explained by god and suffering is uh not as well explained by god so there is actually an analysis you could do there if you keep God's character in back of your mind when you're doing this. Obviously, this can be abused by like just stipulating, oh yeah, God's character is what exactly matches the data out there. But if you don't do that, if you're just consistent, oh yeah, God is with this, um, a perfect being who just does you know morally best stuff, then you can actually appeal to him as an explanation. I do think. Yeah. Um... Oh, oh, sorry. You revealed your Lafin slide. I wanted to save it. Um, oh, I do want to say your. I just add something to add. I know it's like over. We have to redo the stream now. Um, uh, but yeah, no. I just think like with regards to, like what James is saying here, like he talks about this like even with like like the case for the resurrection, where it's like we have no idea like what we'd expect God to do. Um, and I think this is a problem for like the problem like if you want to run a problem of evil argument because those go along the idea of like we expect God to maybe not allow like animal suffering, but we do have animal suffering. So this is evidence against god um but the skeptical theist like i'm not a super big fan of skeptical theism but like what james says especially with regards to like um explaining god's actions where god could do anything skeptical theists could have like a fun time with what james says because if we just have no idea what like god would do or not do like that's that's something similar to what the skeptical theist wants to say and sorry if you're skeptical theist squared and i just roast the skeptical theism um but like i do think that, like oh, no, it just leaves these things open that are very interesting um and could pose problems for like atheistic arguments so yeah yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah, laughing. That is um, the uh, the extent of my what I have to say on the fine tuning argument. And um, if you misunderstood any, or sorry, if you had trouble understanding anything I said, it's entirely your fault because that all made perfect sense in my head. <laughs> so, yeah. And same. I'm sure there's moments where people might be confused with what I'm saying, and I'm sorry, and I hope you can still love me. But um, yeah. Uh, we went through, I mean, we went, we obviously didn't go through like a whole nine hour video, but I think we covered a lot of like James's major objections, mm -hmm. like talking about things like uh, there being other kinds of life and like the problems with like Craig's moral argument and like why would God have any interest in creating like a fine tuned like physical universe in the first place. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else you want to say, Squared, before we start to wrap up here? No, I don't think so. Also, again, I, I, I'm just referring to, um, uh, I, I'm both referring to James more, but 
Nathan did contribute a lot. Just, you know, Nathan, your name has an, another syllable. That's that's more work to actually say. So I'm just going to reference James more. Anyways, um, yeah, I don't think I have anything more to say on that. I, I, I really enjoyed making this um, this presentation. So yeah, thank you for hosting me. It's not my standard artistic style. So not going to have it on my main channel. But yeah, glad somewhere could put this. Yeah, no, I think this was super fun and I hope it's super valuable and we're going to get this probably done under an hour. So if Nathan and yeah. James ever do a response, they have to, we turn nine hours into one hour. So they have to turn one hour into like seven 16 minutes. divided by nine, which is like, yeah, seven minutes-ish. Seven minutes. Um, yeah. So looking forward to that seven minute response video. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess this is good. Like I super, like I'm super grateful for first you squared for coming on. Uh, nice. This was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed listening to you and contributing just a little bit, but you did most, you did like most of the, all the heavy lifting here. So really grateful for you. And I'm super grateful for like James and Nathan, because like, once again, they're like responding to like the best of what, what theism has to say a lot of the times. Like they're not just going for like the softballs and yeah, I'm super grateful for them. They gave me something to listen to when I would work for like eight hours a day over the summer. I could just like put on an episode of bad apologetics at like one and a half times speed. And that's what I listened to for a day at work. And yeah, it was a good time. So yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. We're going to wrap up here. Uh, so, yeah, to Ghostlight and Danny and Titan and everyone else, I hope you found this edifying. Obviously, we don't claim this is, like, the final say and we got everything right and haha, we got them. Um, that's not all we're saying. Hopefully, this is just an invitation for further dialogue and seeking truth. And, yeah, super grateful to Squared and everyone else who tuned in. And, obviously, if you're new to the channel, uh, subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. Super grateful. And if you enjoy our content, consider becoming a patron. But, Squared, one last time, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been so much fun. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in. Have a good one and God bless. Awkward pause until I press end.